The following audio content is a talk given at the Inn, a college ministry of University Presbyterian Church in Seattle, Washington. For more information, please visit our website at www.upc.org forward slash university. We invite you to join us each Tuesday at 9 p.m. on the corner of 47th and 16th in Seattle's U District. Well, welcome uh, once again. My name is Ryan, and I'm excited that you're here tonight. Uh, and thank you for coming out, given the time of the quarter that this is. Uh, and hope that because you have, uh, you have come tonight, that you can all at once be refreshed uh, from taking a step away from your uh, academic pursuits and your studies, but also be uh, challenged and hopefully encouraged uh, in your journey with Christ uh, as you are here tonight. Uh, thank you for being here. Uh, we uh, are wrapping up a series uh, through the book of Romans that we've been doing throughout this quarter. And to, uh, to wrap us up tonight, I want to share with you a story of a spring break that I had uh, in March of 1996. got to give you a little bit of background here. I know some of you are doing the math. How old does that make him? Uh, so spring of 1996, and you have to understand that, that spring of 1996 would have been after the fall of 1995, in which uh, some of you may know this, some of you may not, that in the fall of 1995, there was one of the, the greatest divisional baseball series ever, in which the Mariners came back down two games and end up beating the New York Yankees uh, in three games at home that were just epic, that really, I don't think it's an overstatement to say, really saved baseball in Seattle. Had that series not happened, the Mariners would not be in Safeco Field. They would not be playing in Seattle today. So all that to say, me and some guys in the fraternity that I were at were pretty amped up, pretty stoked about the Mariners at that point and thought, you know, spring break, Let's uh, hit up a little bit of spring training, go see Edgar, Dan, Jay, Junior, uh, Alex Rodriguez was playing for us at that point. Let's go down to spring training, have a good time, giant road trip, yeah, months, let's hit it. So we're, we're cruising down there and we have all these plans, of course, to go to a couple of baseball games and uh, hit the clubs, and by clubs I mean you know, the golf clubs, and maybe a little bit of <laughs> type of stuff that, uh, you know, so, so we were going to do that, and for whatever reason, at that point in my life, I would have called myself a Christian, but I thought that, you know, one thing that might make this trip a little bit more fun would be a fake ID. I was not yet 21. Now, at that point, I would have called myself a Christian. It's, uh, perhaps, as, as you have, have heard me share from up here before, that, that for me, the middle of my sophomore year, there, there began to, to be this change that, that began to take hold. But by the time I got to the middle of my junior year, that change had not yet fully solidified. I was reaching back into stuff that, before that had started to happen, was still really a lot of fun. Something I still enjoyed, something that I, I somehow convinced myself that I think I can be a Christian and do this too. And is it okay if I use a fake ID, but don't get drunk? Lord, I, I'll use my fake ID, but I promise I won't get drunk. Deal? Okay, I think I heard you say yes. 
So we go down, uh, bouncing down to Arizona. I had used this fake ID here in Seattle uh, several times, and I figured in the den of hedonism that is Tempe, Arizona, uh, I would have no trouble using this fake ID. Well, I was wrong. Uh, it, was, it was actually St. Patrick's Day. We go into this, uh, we're trying to get, get into this party, and my fake ID, I can't believe I still remember this, was uh, I had an alias named Patrick Douglas Toomey. And the problem, um, the problem is that uh, Pat was about, I don't know, 30 pounds heavier and five inches taller than I was. And one night, some guy actually bothered to look and notice that something didn't add up here. And there's something about a moment like that where you come face to face with your brokenness and your sinfulness that something starts to happen. Well, what ended up happening in that moment was I simply had that ID taken away. What could have happened is I could have been charged with a lot more. I could have been carted off, perhaps even spent some time behind bars. They can do that. Instead, there was no payment required. I still got to enjoy my, the rest of my spring break. But what that moment of grace did for me was demand a change. It didn't demand a payment, but it did demand a change. I had to come into, uh, I had to confront that this rule of faith that these things that I said that I was believing also applied to me. I thought they applied to other people, and I had hedged my bet with God, right? Hey, I'm going to use this guy, but I'm not going to get drunk, I promise. No, Ryan, the rules apply to you too. And about nine months before my 21st birthday, I finally got that. As we come to the end of a series on Romans, I want to argue that one of the author's primary concerns as we get to the middle of chapter 15 and into chapter 16 is that people might be reading this letter and thinking that it is only for somebody else. This call to radical grace and to faith in that radical grace that is revealed in Jesus Christ, his death and resurrection, that is all for somebody else. That throughout this quarter, we've been using this image of an umbrella that I introduced the first week. On the way in, you got a itty-bitty little umbrella, and I've got this ridiculously big one up here. Okay? If you have that little umbrella, you can take a look at it now. Because what, I wanted, what I've wanted to show throughout this quarter is that these different panels in this umbrella, this love that, that Tracy talked about and, and assurance... In Romans 8, the, the hope that comes out of chapters 5, 6, and 7 that Dave Lutz talked about, the, the service that Chris talked about, the, the repentance that Mike talked about, and last week, the, the tolerance and acceptance that Janie talked about. If you, if you weren't here last week, it's worth listening to. All of these things that we've talked about, as you look at that umbrella, form these panels that create this covering, and in that center... The center of that thing where everything is anchored into. My friends, think of that as Jesus Christ.
All these things that we're, that we've been talking about that create this covering come together in a living center that is Jesus Christ. We are covered by this thing called grace. Tonight, what my, my hope is, is to, is to really answer the question of, so what? So we have this umbrella. So there is this covering. So what? We're going to get there. I want to start by just addressing this question of, of, that you might ask me of, Ryan, what do you want me to get out of this? Why would we spend an entire quarter on Romans? Somebody want to get that. That's just, Noel wants to come in and hang out with us. She's awesome. <sighs> Say it with me. Here's, here's one of the things I want you to get, okay? Grace is what I want you to get. Say it with me on three. One, two, three. Grace. Thank you. Okay, another thing I want you to get, faith. Say it with me on three. One, two, three. Faith. Grace and faith. Grace Through Jesus Christ by faith. That's what I want you to get. If you get nothing else, if somebody comes up to you and asks, what is the book of Romans all about? You can tell them it's about the fact that we're sinners and we receive grace by faith in Jesus Christ. That's what I think Paul wants you to get. It's what he first said at the very beginning of Romans in the first Verse, or the first chapter, the fifth verse. He says, through him, Jesus, we received grace and apostleship to call all the Gentiles to faith and obedience for his name's sake. What I want you to get is we've received grace. And our call to faith and obedience for his name's sake. That's where we start. Now, we're gonna, we've, we've heard all about through all these things that we've been t- talking about this quarter that create this covering. And we skip out into chapter 15. If what has happened in these first 14 and a half chapters is Paul making the case. Making this case for grace. For faith. What we get now is this closing argument. And to start off this closing argument... We hear the end of Jamie's talk from last week, beginning at at chapter 15, verse 7. He says, accept one another then, just as Christ accepted you in order to bring praise to God. Then this simple re-articulation of the gospel. He said this several times throughout. For I tell you that Christ has become a servant of the Jews on behalf of God's truth, so that the promises made to the patriarchs might be confirmed, and moreover, that the Gentiles might glorify God for his mercy. Okay, just restating the gospel here. It's not something that is this new idea he had. It's not something that's trendy. Rather, he's saying, look, remember all these promises made to the patriarchs? Remember the old covenant? It's all been fulfilled in this servant named Jesus. If you're looking for just a simple articulation of the gospel, this is one of the verses that you can memorize. Once you have it memorized, go back and read your Old Testament. It will bring what this means to life for you. It's not something new. It's not a fad. What Paul wants you to know, 
What he wanted the Roman church that he was writing to, kind of this fractured Roman church of, of Jewish Christians and Gentile Christians, and what he wants us to know in our own fractured circumstances is this gospel. It has all been fulfilled in Jesus. And it is for you. It's for you. He gets to that more in, in chapter 15, beginning at verse 14, when he says that I myself am convinced, brothers and sisters, that you yourselves are full of goodness, filled with knowledge and competent to instruct one another. He's saying, I know your intentions are good. Yet I have written you quite boldly on some things. Boldly on what things? Acceptance, tolerance, love, service. Grace. Boldly on some points to remind you of them again. We all need a reminder. And I know every single one of us in this room needs that reminder again tonight. We need to be reminded that this is true. We need to be reminded about what the promise is. What we've been invited to. I remind you of them again because of the grace God gave me. The reminder about grace flows through grace. So Paul wants you to get the gospel. And he wants you to know that it's for you. If you have your Bible with you, if you were to look ahead into chapter 16, there is a long list of names that, that Paul drops. And he makes this very personal. And what he's in effect trying to do. I get a lot of questions about why, why are there all these names at the back of this, this thing that's in the Bible. Here's one, uh, one thought that I was, I was drawn to. That as, as we've talked about the, the state of the Roman church. This was basically Paul doing a little bit of name dropping. This is his referral list. So he's, he's trying to include as many people as he can in this, but work and leverage the personal relationships that might exist already in the Roman church. So as he's saying, as he's giving a shout out to all these people, he's like, hey, to those who belong to the household of Aristobulus, hey, what's up? Uh, greet Herodian, my fellow Jew, you know? And then I greet Tryphena and Tryphosa, those women who work hard in the Lord. Basically, what he's trying to do is for those that might be hearing about this letter, that then hear this greeting, and they're like, wait a minute, I know Triposa. And if this dude knows Triposa, and I know Triposa, and I trust Triposa, then I'm going to trust this dude. You see, what he's doing is he's trying to leverage the relationships that he does have to, to capture as many of the Roman Christians as he can. We're all connected here. This message is for you, and it's personal. The gospel message is for you, it's personal. Friends, that's what that list of names in chapter 16 is all about. We're in relationship. We are in this together as sinners that need these promises to be fulfilled in God because we couldn't do it ourselves. The temptation, of course, is to think that this letter, that all this news, all that's been written is for somebody else. This new rule of faith in grace is not for me. 
It's for somebody else. It's those Jewish Christians that are pointing over to the Gentiles saying, no, this letter's for them. And the Gentile Christians that are pointing back and going, I don't think this is for us. Rather, this is for them. What Paul is doing here at the end is reinforcing that this is for you. Uh, as, as some of you know, I, I'm a big golf fan. And recently, as a result of that, I've been intrigued with all of the chaos that has followed uh, world number one Tiger Woods since Thanksgiving and some of the, the, uh, the news about marital infidelity uh, that, has, that has come out. Well, recently, uh, Tiger gave a rather lengthy apology statement. And I want to read part of, of his apology statement and, and, then, and then comment on it because I think it kind of connects. Tiger says this in, in an apology. He says, The issue involved here was my repeated irresponsible behavior. I was unfaithful. I had affairs. I cheated. What I did is not acceptable. And I am the only person to blame. I stopped living by the core values that I was taught to believe in. I knew my actions were wrong, but I convinced myself that normal rules didn't apply. I never thought about who I was hurting. Instead, I thought only about myself. I ran straight through the boundaries that a married couple should live by. I thought I could get away with whatever I wanted to. I felt I had worked hard my entire life and deserved to enjoy all the temptations around me. I felt I was entitled. Thanks to money and fame, I didn't have to go far to find them. I was wrong. I was foolish. I don't get to play by different rules. The same boundaries that apply to everyone apply to me. I brought this shame on myself. Tiger Woods. This message of grace is for us. It applies to us. We are included in that group of people that are sinners. And in our temptation to even say we have it figured out. This must apply to somebody else. Maybe this is returning to your core values and remembering what the gospel is all about. But tonight you need to be reminded of it. Maybe you're hearing this rule of faith for the first time. Whatever it is, this moment, this message is for you. So you're on board and you're going, okay, okay. You keep talking about this rule, this grace. What is it? Tell me what it is, Ryan. I want to tell you about grace. But I'm going to start by telling you first what grace is not. Again, starting with the temptation, we're, tempta we're tempted to think that grace is merely being nice, <laughs> being sweet. Grace is, is the, the name of one of the, the old women in your church that, that always brings something for the potluck. Grace is not merely nice. During the Olympics, if you watched any figure skating or ice dancing, I didn't, but my wife did. You heard about... Uh, you heard these judge, you heard the commentators rather saying, oh, they are so graceful. You, you heard about this idea of grace as something that is, that is elegant. 
You think about it as something that, that, uh, that just kind of steals the show. Grace is not merely elegant or nice. And if we reduce thinking about grace to a mere nicety, friends, we miss it. It's not being, it's not about being graceful in the figure skating sense. To help us understand what grace is, I think it helps to put it in the context of uh, two other kind of courtroom words. So grace defined might be a little bit more like this. To understand it, you have to first understand what justice is. Okay, justice is getting that which you deserve. Is I presented a fake ID and somebody called me out on it, I got justice on the one hand. I had my fake ID taken away. I had somebody call, call me out and say, no, you are not Pat Toomey. You are not 21, you are not 175 pounds, and you are certainly not 6'3". <laughs> Justice, right there. I got what I deserved. I got called out. The next word is mercy. Mercy is not getting that which you deserved. On a big party night like St. Patrick's Day, there's cops all over with the mobile place. They could have easily called somebody over, had me taken into the little trailer, booked, fined, whatever. It goes on my record. Do I get jobs? The fact that all this guy did was say, give me the idea and get out of here. Mercy. I did not get what I deserved. It would have been easily justified well within the law to do something else. Finally, we get to grace. Some of you have already probably gone down this road. If justice is getting what one deserves, mercy is not getting what one deserves. Grace is getting what you don't deserve. What did I get in that moment? I got to keep my spring break. I got to keep my spring break. I didn't have to pay any money. I didn't have to to go into a a police trailer. It didn't cost me anything. But it did demand a change. You see, grace and what it does, it creates, if not demands, a change. From that moment on, uh, not to sound over-righteous, but to let you into the end of the story, I quit drinking. I stop participating in that type of activity. It demands a change. So what? So this is grace. What does that matter? Well, let me see if I can help deepen the definition of grace by quoting from uh, a German theologian named Dietrich Bonhoeffer, who at the beginning of his book, The Cost of Discipleship, lays out a contrast between what cheap grace is versus what authentic or costly grace is. He says this, Cheap grace means grace is a doctrine, a principle, a system. It's mechanical. There's a way, a system that you can put in place that makes you spiritual. Cheap grace means the justification of sin without justification of the sinner. It means a grace that you say, oh, I'm good, but this is just the way I am. Grace can't change me. 
That's cheap grace. Cheap grace is grace without discipleship. Grace without the cross. Grace without Jesus Christ living and incarnate. Instead, he says, what we have is costly grace. Costly grace is the gospel which must be sought again and again. The gift which must be asked for. The door at which a man or woman must knock. Such grace is costly because it calls us to follow. And it is grace because it calls us to follow Jesus Christ. It is costly because it costs one their life. And it is grace because it gives one the only true life. It is costly because it condemns sin. And grace because it justifies the sinner. Above all, it is costly because it costs God the life of his son. Cheap grace. Costly grace. Friends, cheap grace does nothing for you. Cheap grace does not matter. Costly grace matters. It changes you and it changes the world. As I started to to say, when we confront what this costly grace is, it moved me to make a change, to make a resolution that from, from that point forward, I was not going to drink until I was 21. Well, in the process, I can't say that I really liked that journey, by the way. There were times as somebody who it had indulged that scene that I wanted to continue on that scene. It was fun for me. It was also leading me down a path that would have been rather destructive had I stayed on it. I'm not sure I would have discovered what moderation with alcohol would have looked like. Friends, what happened on that road in those, in those nine months was that I, I ex- experienced God and the transformation that comes from costly grace in a way that I never had before. There was something different. And what I can tell you was that grace was real for me in that moment. I saw how it was changing me, though I didn't always like it. But grace is not merely about saving individuals. If we believe this, and if we believe that grace can make changes in one's life like it did for mine, what would happen if that started taking over the world? What would happen if we all started extending that type of grace? Grace isn't just something that saves one person. Friends, it's God's plan to redeem the entire world. And the invitation is for all to accept this gift of grace and come underneath uh, this umbrella. Ella, Ella, A, A, A. It is costly grace that changes the world. Uh, more than, who, who sings that song? Like Rihanna or somebody? Um, I'm not sure she has a whole bunch to say about grace, but one of my favorite bands, U2, does. And as we answer this question of what could grace do, 
in our world. I want to read some of the, the lyrics here. And who knows, maybe I'll even bust into song. Uh, from this song called Grace from U2. Here's what, what Bono and the gang say about grace. And I think it guides us in, in, it guides our imagination in what could happen with this whole idea of the grace that is offered in Jesus Christ. Grace takes the blame. She covers the shame, removes the stain. Goes on to say, grace finds beauty in everything. Grace finds beauty in everything. Grace carries the world on her hips. No champagne flute for her lips. No twirls or skips between her fingertips. She carries a pearl in perfect condition. What once was hurt. Friends, grace heals. What once was friction. Grace sands and smooths. What left a mark. Grace covers that mark. What no longer stings, friends, what soothes. Grace makes beauty out of ugly things. Friends, the idea is that we get to participate in this grace. It is a grace that not only changes us, but changes our world. And it is a grace that we celebrate at this table. A grace in which we celebrate the reality of it at this table. This table, as our Roman Catholic brothers and sisters like to call it, is the Eucharist. Which simply means the good grace. It is a table that reminds us that what is old can become new. What is dead can be brought back to life. What is broken can be fixed. Grace, costly grace, finds beauty in everything. The Apostle Paul, the same person that wrote this letter to the Romans, tells us uh, later that we should come to this table to remember. He reminds us that Uh, Jesus hung out with a group of his friends, a group of people that needed grace and needed to be reminded of that grace, needed to be reminded that this truth was also for them. 2,000 years later, we come to the same table for that very purpose. 